Welcome to Mix Understood, where we explore identity, the meaning of the word race, and talk about the multicultural and multiracial experience with stories from our own lives. I'm Amy. And I'm Hannah Lee. And in today's episode, we're returning to the golden era of Hollywood after last week's episode where we spotlighted the life stories of Merle Oberon and Rita Hayworth. Today, we'll be exploring the incredible lives of two more mixed stars, Lena Horne and Freddie Washington. She couldn't do leading roles because she was publicly identifying as being black. And then she couldn't do stereotypical roles as maids, for example, because she was too light. But he is white, which offended both white and black people to the extent that they actually received hate mail and threats of violence. They did hide the the marriage for three years. <laughs> oh my God, I can just imagine you wave, waving your finger and being like, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly, we both cracked up. Before we dive into the episode, it's important to say that we are here to offer up stories, ideas, and various theories for you to consider and decide for yourself in light of your own knowledge and experience. We hope to explore, learn, and grow together with you. So we're not professing to have the answers. Our aim is to simply start conversations around these topics. So I've been reading and learning so much about Lena Horne. It's been incredibly inspiring and also kind of daunting to have to try to bring all of this information into this episode. I went down multiple rabbit holes and um, this woman is truly legendary. Um, So I will try to do her justice today. I'm sure you will. Oh, I believe in you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You you can do this. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I said a little prayer before we started and I was like, Lena Horn, can you give me your blessing? (laughs) All righty. So let's jump right in. So Lena Horn was an American singer, actress, dancer, and civil rights activist. She was obviously one of the most popular African-American performers in the 1940s and 50s. And her career in music, film, television, and theater spanned over more than 70 years. I repeat, 70 years. Yeah, pretty much longer than the average lifespan of someone from her generation. Mm -hmm. Um, And even today, uh, she won a Tony Award, three Grammy Awards, a Lifetime Achievement Award, and even became the Kennedy Center Honors recipient in 1984. She achieved all of this, not only facing racism, but facing the complicated dynamics of being racially ambiguous as she navigated people's perception of her identity. You know, she was mixed race, mm-hmm. although the the term mixed, like we were talking about in the previous episode, wasn't really used back then. You were either black or white. Her mixed heritage of African-American, European-American, and Native American, as well as her light skin, opened some doors and closed others. She was criticized for trying to pass as a white woman or even asked to paint her skin darker to look more like a black woman. 
But nothing could stop her. She was a pioneer and carved out a special place in Black history. She was known for being one of the first African-American performers to be signed to a major Hollywood film studio. But she didn't just break barriers in showbiz. She also used her voice and her leverage to battle racial and social injustice and raise awareness to the struggles and hardships that the Black community faced. So mm. Lena truly left an unforgettable legacy for generations to come, and I'm absolutely thrilled to dive into her life story with you today. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to the start. Yes. Okay. All right. When was she born? This okay. Mega star. This mega star was born in the summer of 1917 in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, as Lena Mary Calhoun Horn. So apparently in the States, the Calhoun name is actually mostly remembered nowadays in association with the seventh vice president, John C. Calhoun, who was a fierce supporter of slavery and thought it was a good thing. So his nephew owned the slaves that were Lena Horne's ancestors. And I mention this because Lena's life and name represents this interesting link between history's white founding fathers and then the slave families and their descendants who managed to carry out their names into freedom. So, okay, maybe this is a stupid question. How did she end up with that name? How did her family end up with that name? I'm not 100% sure on this, but from what I was able to gather, her great-great-grandfather, I'm not sure how many greats are in there, hmm. was a slave to John C. Calhoun's nephew. And back then, I think the slaves sometimes took the name of their owners. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, is she was still mixed. Um, that's not her only link to, you know, to being white. Um, both her parents were mixed, as I said earlier, African-American, European-American, and Native American heritage. Um, her parents were part of the well-educated upper middle class of Black New Yorkers at the time. Her father was a hotel and restaurant owner and a professional gambler. And her mother was an actress. So in Lena's biography, she stated that on the day she was born, her father was actually in the middle of a card game trying to get the money to pay the hospital costs. Oh, my goodness. Her poor mother. <laughs> She's like trying to, trying to give birth. You know, he should be holding her hand. Yes. Right? Telling her to breathe and push and that she's good gonna be okay having gone through birth recently and just imagining that scenario oh my god that poor woman oh my gosh yeah stressful so that's how she came into the world that's how she came into the world and then at the age of three actually her parents separate and her father leaves and because her mother was traveling with various theater troops at the time, she's sent to live with her grandparents. And that's like just the beginning of her moving, 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 moving around. 
She mm. moved so many times as she was growing up. Um, at the age of seven, her mother returned, and then the two of them travel together and stay with friends and family across the states, And which meant that she was, you know, moving from school to school to school. I read that she attended schools in Florida, Georgia, Ohio. So very unstable upbringing. Mm. Then they return to New York when she's 12. And a few years later, at the age of 16, she quits school. Some say it's because her mother, being an actress as well, was kind of pushing her to, to just jump in. Others, Other places I read said that her mother was actually sick and needed her to support her. So she basically quits school and she joins the chorus line at the famed Cotton Club in Harlem, where basically Blacks entertained a strictly white clientele. By the way, I lived in Harlem for seven years, not far yeah. from uh, walking distance from there. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, um, so this teenage Lena Horn just like hits the ground running. She gets a job at this club. Um, the only thing was, again, that they were really strict about who can watch the shows, you know? So if, so relatives of the performers, friends of the performers, if they weren't white, they weren't allowed to be there. Wow. And also I read some places say that she was singing. She had her own show. Other places say she actually wasn't allowed to sing. She was only allowed to observe and dance. She was part of the chorus line. But she got to meet and observe and rub shoulders with really big names like Duke Ellington mm-hmm. and Cab Calloway, Ethel Waters, Billie Holiday. Apparently, there's a story of when her stepfather tried to like get the club owners to let her sing and not just dance. The club owners beat up her dad. And that's when she realized, okay, I need to... I need to get out of here. You know, I need to go to a place where I can really fulfill my potential. Shall I keep going? Yes. Okay. So she's now 17 and she makes her freaking Broadway debut. The year is 1934 and it's in the production called Dance With Your Gods. But the show only lasted nine performances. So it was like a big deal that she got in and at such a young age. But unfortunately, Broadway is so brutal back then and till this day. I mean, yeah. it's, it's always this like scary feeling when a show opens on Broadway because you just really don't know how long nah. it's going to last. Yeah. Not long after that, she joined this all-black um, orchestra called Noble Sissel's Society Orchestra. And that's where she really started to hone her distinctive, you know, vocalizing style. And this band was actually the first black orchestra to be booked in many American dance halls. Oh, wow. So she had the experience of being a part of like a full black orchestra, And even though she was starting to like really hone in on her like storytelling and singing ability, she briefly abandons kind of the industry and ends up going to Pittsburgh to live with her dad for a little bit. And while she's out there, she also gets married, ends up having two kids. Mm. 
So at this age, I think she's like 19, 20. She's young. Very young. She has two kids, so she's out there for a few years, and the marriage doesn't work. She she gets a divorce, and she ends up getting custody for the daughter, and her ex gets custody for the son. Oh, my goodness. Really? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, imagine being that young, already divorced, already, you know, two kids, and then you have one kid with you, and now you're having to, like, navigate everything and childcare, and I, I don't even know. I, I couldn't find any information about that. And also the heartbreak of not having the other child not with you. Not having the other child with you and heartbreak over the marriage not working out. And, you know, I thought, I think it's interesting that she went and she stayed with her dad after all those years. Like, what was that about? Mm. Um, anyway, she she goes on to be one of the first Black women who was successfully able to work on both sides of the color line. She becomes the first African-American woman to tour with an all-white band. It was called Charlie Barnett's Outfit. Um, And that's when she says, like, that's when her career really started to, like, take off as a singer. You know, it was like a pivotal moment in her career. She was also... the featured singer. But the tricky part about that is like, you're A, you're a woman, B, mm. you're black, surrounded by a whole orchestra of white people. And she wasn't able to like stay and socialize at the venues where they were performing afterwards. Sometimes she had to even sleep on the band bus because hotels wouldn't let her in with her colleagues. Oh my god, this is unbelievable. I mean, I know it I know it happened, but just hearing these stories it, it's just it's just crazy. Right? So she had to go and perform, but she wasn't entitled to any of anything else. Anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm also just thinking of it from like the pr- perspective of a performer. We know that feeling, how good it feels when you're in the spotlight and you're yeah. captivating the audience. And and then when the show is over, it's always a downer as it is, right? When it's done and you're kind of like back in reality. But imagine back in that reality where you're suddenly, not only nothing, you're considered a subhuman. Yeah, it's awful. So she ends up leaving the tour. I feel like the theme with Lena is like, trying to keep finding a home, you know. She's trying different things and disappointed in every situation. She ends up coming back to New York. And I read that she follows Billie Holiday's footsteps into the West Village, uh, where there was this left liberal club called Cafe Society Club, which was popular with both Black and white artists and and intellectuals and and she's performing there and i'm just going to have to i just want to stop right now and be like at this point she'd already lived i think a pretty full life <laughs> yeah like you know she she was on broadway she toured she was in this she was in that she she got mm-hmm. married she had two kids she like lived all over the states yeah, I think most so people much. would be totally content if that was like their life story. <laughs> <laughs> Put your feet up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, she she's just getting started. So 
again, it was hard with all of the different places that I was reading. Some places said that she got scouted in New York um, while she was performing in a nightclub in New York. Others say that it happened after she moved to Hollywood and she was scouted there. But bottom line, she gets scouted by uh, someone from MGM and they get her a, a screen test and she it becomes the first black actress to sign a long-term contract with MGM. And what's incredible about this is that not only did she sign the contract, but she had it in the contract that she would not play servants, prostitutes, or other demeaning roles that were generally only available to Black actresses of the time. The only problem with that was that then it kind of created a little bit of backlash from the Black actors in Hollywood who saw her contract as like a threat to their livelihood. Mm. Yeah, it's tricky. It's like on one hand, she's making progress and making advances. But on the other hand, there's always like this price. Oh, yeah. So because she wouldn't do these like stereotypical degrading roles, it kind of put her in a tricky situation because really black actors were kept away from playing the big roles, the serious roles. So it didn't leave her much options, you know, the, the mm. color barrier in Hollywood was so strong. So that was tricky. She didn't have much to, to choose from, you know, but, but I, I really... I have so much respect for her that she was like, I'm willing to take a hit, but I'm going to do it my way. So again, this was like a big moment of celebration for her, but also the beginning of a whole new set of challenges because of how she was perceived and her skin tone. And mm. Hollywood, basically, because of they don't know, really know what to do with how she looks and the contract they have with her, I guess. They decide that they want to market her as a Latina. What? <laughs> she fiercely rejected this, but did end up portraying a Latina woman in her debut film with MGM, which was called Panama Hattie. Um, but the problem was, is that she looked so white on screen and they were like worried that audiences would be like, oh my gosh, what is a white woman doing with all these black men around her? They needed to see that dark skin to justify her being on the screen, you know, in this scene singing with like these other black actors around her. And so they actually created, um, they commissioned someone to create a custom makeup, which was called light Egyptian. And they <sighs> darkened her skin a little bit. So yeah. You know, I, I read about this. Yes. Do you know that they've still got foundations? One of them is, um, I think it's by Nas, actually. One of them is called Punjab and the other one's called Barcelona. And I just remember, <laughs> I just remember being a mix between the two of them. Oh, you're, you're, you're half yeah, Punjab, like, oh, half I'm... Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually use Nas as well. I need to look up what my color is. Yeah, look it up. Okay. I know it's quite funny that they do that and it I is. wonder if they still do it actually because it's quite paint excuse the pun painting everyone with the same brush <laughs> <laughs> isn't it though 
Yeah. It's like, oh, if you're if Punjab, oh, everyone's this color from Punjab. Yeah. Well, no, they're not. Yeah. They need to get a little bit more creative. Come on, guys. What, Come on. what would you replace Punjab with? Oh, what would I p- replace it with? They should just go with like... I just basically wouldn't have names of places in the world <laughs> yeah. as the foundations, for goodness sake. There's another way of doing it, guys. <gasps> yeah, I agree. They do it with lipstick and, and nail colors. They give these like really fun names like... Oh yeah, party for two. Yeah, they do. I'm trying to remember a, a nail color, but I can't think of anything offhand. Wait, I'm gonna go grab some of my nail colors real quick. <laughs> One second. <laughs> All right. Okay, you're gonna love this. Okay, this yellow um, Essie nail polish is called All Fun and Games. There you go. Don't you want to put that right on? <laughs> okay. Um, we have this like kind of a purple color. Also, this one is called Winning Streak. There you go. I should probably put that on today. Um, yeah, you should. Oh, there's one called So Shifty, also purple. Oh, interesting. Anyway, the point is, come on, Nas, <laughs> get it together. Here is a quote from Lena Horne. My entire life until then had been a succession of attempts by other people to give me what nowadays I supposed would be called an image. She later wrote, but who was really me? The respectable middle-class Brooklyn girl? The rootless child? The band singer? Or maybe just a chick who would end up faking it as a Spanish or as a blues shouter? I was still grabbing my identity on the fly. I really relate to that. It's like grabbing your identity on the fly. Oh my God, it's such a great way to put it. Yeah, I can really, I can really understand that. So she's, she has this big contract. She's doing all these things. But unfortunately, the scenes that she was in were created in a way that could be standalone scenes that could be cut out so that when they showed these films in the South... People there wouldn't be like, oh, my gosh, what is this black woman doing in the film? Mm. So, yeah. So even though she was like making all this headway, she was still so disposable. So disposable and just still instability on top of instability because of what you look like and the way that you were born. She has another quote from her. In every other film, I just sang a song or two. The scenes could be cut out when they were sent to local distributors in the South. Unfortunately, I didn't get much of a chance to act. So um, she actually then goes on to do two all-Black cast musicals um, in 1943. MGM, they loan her out to 20th Century Fox to play the role of Selena Rogers in this all-Black musical called Stormy Weather, which did really, really well in the box office. And obviously the the rendition of the title song became like this huge hit. And it's it's I love huge. that song so much. Me too. I have a story for you about this song. <laughs> Just Go gonna on. digress. Did you sing it? Um no. Well, okay, so the song was playing in our house Christmas time, and my sister and I, my sister who's also a dancer, we're like standing in front of the mirror in the living room and we're just improvising this like 
pantomime dance as we're singing the song together. <laughs> so we're both singing. We're like, don't know why. Ain't no sun up in the sky. Stormy weather <laughs> since my man and I. And then I proceed to like kind of use my finger and go, no, no, no. Like we're ain't together. But my sister proceeds to uh, like mime that she's eating like a bowl of soup or cereal <laughs> because okay. she all these years she thought it was eight together that they're not together oh. since like they <laughs> since they ate since they had that meal they're not together anymore what happened what did they eat <laughs> oh my god I can just imagine you wave, waving your finger and being like what are you doing <laughs> Exactly. We both cracked up. So since then, every time I hear that song, I mime like eight together. <laughs> it's such a different meaning. Yeah. And then it started raining all of the time because of that meal. Yeah. Anyway. Can I tell you one thing that I thought? Yeah. This is not about Stormy Weather. This is about that song. Um, what has it go? Get your booty on the floor tonight. You know that song? Make my day. Uh, my day. Yeah. I thought the words were, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. And I didn't think it was that um, this in my adult life, but as a, as a teenager, because we used to do disco dancing to it, I thought it was, catch your boobie on a fork tonight. <laughs> <laughs> what you, I used to sing that's what used to come out of my mouth which which part of the song was catch your booby on your on a fork what I just sang get your booty on the floor tonight and I thought it was catch your booby on oh dear oh dear I love that so stormy weather okay so she ends up doing um these these two musicals stormy weather and cabin in the sky um, which is regarded by some as one of the finest performances of her career. Um, and those were also the only movies in which she said that she actually played a character who was involved in the plot. Mm. It's like, imagine how successful she was, you know, and still how tough it was to just get a line, be a part of the plot, be a part of the narrative. Mm. Anyway, by the mid-40s, she becomes the highest paid black actor in the country. Wow. Yeah. So like I was saying earlier, I mean, she'd already done so much and she's like, no, let's take it up a notch. <sighs> oh, wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And then a lot of her songs become these like huge hits and instant classics like Deed I Do, As Long As I Live, um, and Cole Porter's Just One of Those Things. So- like you said, in the mid-40s, she was one of the highest paid black actors. But was she then getting dialogue parts on a regular basis? Or was it still doing the songs that they could shoot out if they wanted to? Yeah. No, I mean, here's a quote from her. She says, the only time I ever said a word to another actor who was white was Catherine Grayson in a little segment of Showboat included in Till the Clouds Roll By which was a 1946 movie about the life of Jerome Kern. Lena Horne th said this in an interview in 1990. 
Oh, so, wow. And, and wasn't that the film that she was also being considered to play one yeah. of the main parts for? So basically, in 1951, MGM made Showboat into a movie for the second time. So she was like in, in the original one. She had that one very small part. And now MGM is like, we're making it again. And the interesting part about it was that the role was they were lo- they needed someone who's mixed to play the role. And it was like, oh, my gosh, Lena would be perfect for it. She's mixed and she's already been a part of like the original production. But the role was given to Ava Gardner. I mean, at the time, Lena Horn was already no longer under contract with MGM. And according to some people, they say that she was never really seriously considered for the part anyway. Ultimately, Horn was rejected or didn't get the part, they say, because of the production's code ban on interracial relationships in films. So the film was about this character, Julie Laverne, who was passing as white and who marries a white man um, in the film, which is both dangerous and illegal. And so that just gives you the context. So Lena Horne was, had the option to maybe play someone who was mixed, who was white passing, which was exactly kind of mm-hmm. related so much to her, how she looked and how she was perceived. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only did they give the role to Ava Gardner, they actually <laughs> used makeup to darken Ava Gardner's skin to mm. fit the role. Oh my gosh, you know, this this doesn't surprise me hearing this through also doing research about Freddie Washington, who I'm going to talk about in a bit. You know, it, it seems like it was common for a white actress to play a biracial role because of the haste code, because it was mm-hmm. forbidden to show the mixing of races on screen. Yeah, but I mean, also there weren't even, there were, Few and far between mixed roles to begin with. I mean, even now, 2023, there aren't that many mixed characters on screen. So Yeah, true. But it's just like so gutting that also when a role comes along that is so suited to you, yeah, you can't play it because it's forbidden to show that yeah. on screen. Yeah. So Lena Horne's doing really well you know, uh, given the crazy circumstances. And she actually becomes the number one pinup girl for thousands of African-American GIs. Um, But she kind of gets in trouble because she refuses to sing for segregated audiences or to groups where apparently they had German prisoners of war seated in front of African-American servicemen. So she was like, um, that's kind of messed up. You would rather put a Nazi in front of a Black person. I'm not going to perform. And so when she did that, when she became outspoken and and criticized how Black soldiers were treated, um, she kind of got in trouble. And uh, the USO said to her, you're not going to be allowed to go any place anymore under our auspices. So from then on, she says, she was labeled as a bad little red girl. So Lena Horne basically claimed that because of this and because of a few other reasons, including her friendship with 
the leftist Paul Robeson, she was pretty much blacklisted and unable to get film and television roles for like seven years. Some people say that's not quite true, that she still did get some television appearances and she still got more opportunity more than other Black performers and that it it wasn't, that there were other factors involved and it wasn't just politics or race that contributed to her lack of work. But, you know, yeah. I'm not a detective. Yeah, exactly. so. we, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But basically when she was kind of absent from the screen, she found success in other ways and kind of went full force into her music. And she ended up having this really successful show at the Waldorf Astoria. It was called Lena Horn at the Waldorf Astoria. And it became like top 10 on the charts and became also the best-selling album by a female singer in RCA Victor's history. Wow. So she's hustling, you know, one door closes. She's like, okay, let me go this way. Let me keep going. Around then uh, is also like when she marries for the second time and she marries uh, musical arranger Lenny Hayton, but he is white, which offended both whites and black people to the extent that they actually received hate mail and threats of violence. They did hide the, the marriage for three years which like, oh my gosh, three years is a long time. And then eventually, you know, it came out. And she did say at one point that she actually married him because he had more entry than a black man. You know, it was kind of a business transaction. But she said that over time she learned to love him and that he was really good to her and and really patient. And Oh my gosh, she said that later in life. Yeah. Mm, That's so honest. It's crazy how, yeah, how her whole personal life is just like... Right there. Right there in front of the whole world to see. And it seems like she's not shy in sort of vocalizing it as well. I mean, from what I'm hearing. So in 1963, she continues to be vocal in like standing up for black human rights. And she actually participated in the March on Washington, you know, where um, Martin Luther King spoke. Mm -hmm. And she performs at rallies throughout the country for the National Council for Negro Women. And she continues, you know, to have like a decade full of international touring, recording, acting, you know, for television and, and film. And she really starts to find like her audience and her people. But then all of this just completely falls apart because her father, her son and her husband all die within oh. a period of, of a year which I can't even imagine. Her father, her son, and her husband. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's the thing. It's like, I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of us buy into this idea, like, if only I'll be successful enough, then I'll be sort of protected from life. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter how much money you have, how much success, how many things you own, Life touches all of us. Yeah. At the most random times. That's right. Now you'd think for some person that would have been enough to just completely knock them out, send them to like a mental institute and and that's it, check out. And she does check out for a little bit. She retreats from public life, but she ends up having a comeback 
1981 with her one-person show on Broadway called Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music. Hmm. And it's like a chronicle of her early life and almost 50 years in show business. And this show ran for 14 months. Talking again about that first Broadway debut she had where Mm -hmm. she, it would only had nine shows. This one ran for 14 months Mm. and it was a one woman show. Yeah. So, wow. And to do that when you've had so much grief in your life. I know. I know, to come back around like that. That just gave me chills when he told me the title, The Lady and Her Music, like after she's had the deaths of these three close men to her. Yeah. And then she wins a Tony for it, which, I mean, it's great, but you're right. It's not so much the Tony. It's more that she was able to pick the pieces and put them back together and and keep going. That's really the, the victory. Yeah. Anyway, she passed away on May 9th, 2010, at the age of 92. So she had a long life. And she worked for so many of, of those years. I know, of that she time. worked hard. Oh, wow, yeah. what ups and downs she went through. Yeah. She really was just this brilliant artist. She showed incredible resilience in the face of so many challenges, racial challenges. And she also had a significant impact both on the entertainment industry, but also, you know, on the fight for civil rights. I want to end it with a quote from her. My identity is very clear to me now. I am a black woman. I'm free. I no longer have to be a credit I don't have to be a symbol to anybody. I don't have to be a first to anybody. I don't have to be an imitation of a white woman that Hollywood sort of hoped I'd become. I'm me, and I'm like nobody else. I'm, I'm literally clapping my hands. I love that. Oh, I'm no. me, and I'm like nobody else. Yeah, just such a sense of, like, victory of... of owning who you are after going through all of that wow what a life what a life what a trailblazer yes just so inspiring Mm -hmm. and you can't fathom the things that she went through like yeah we all know what insecurity feels like or we know what it's like to be like oh maybe my scene might be cut out of this if I don't do a good job or something like that but to be faced with everything that was going on racially during that time and things that are not in your control I just can't imagine what that must have been like for her yeah and every move you make you get punished because you know someone is out there saying no 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 that's not right what you're doing yeah at every turn yeah even when she started to stand up for what she believed in and she's like I don't want to perform like that I don't agree with that they were like well no you're blacklisted now then what an incredible woman. Yeah. Thank you, Lena Horn. Oh my gosh. Thank you for telling her story, Hanalee. And mm. there's a lot. And that was a busy 92 years. <laughs> Very busy. So we need to get to work, you and I. What We're going to start each day with like 100 push ups. Um. <laughs> yeah. Everyone just think of Lena Horn. <laughs> Wow. You know, 
she was like this leaf in the wind, you know, just being tossed around, trying to find a home, trying to find a place where she belonged. And simultaneously was such an anchor for the Black community and for women. That's a great word. I think that is such a beautiful contrast that despite what life gave her, she was able to take it and still output something else. And then in the end, she felt anchored herself because she was like, this is who I am. I'm free. All right, so over to the incredible, amazing woman that is Freddie Washington, who I've become obsessed with. (laughs) (laughs) It is like that though, isn't it? You, You delve into these women's life and you're like, oh my God, I'm just like thinking about her all the time while I'm walking around and- yes You know, just doing my Mm -hmm. daily (laughs) life. (laughs) Okay. Frederica Carolyn, otherwise known as Freddie Washington, was born in 1903. And- She was an American stage and film actress, civil rights activist as well, performer and writer. And that actually was a big part of her life. Both parents were of African-American and European ancestry. I'm not sure exactly where in Europe, but so basically she is just so unbelievably stunning. I mean, she is she is way more than her looks, but I was floored when I saw her in The Imitation of Life. Mm -hmm. Isn't she? So she had near white skin and hazel eyes according to mixedracestudies.org and her most well-known film is the one that I've just mentioned Imitation of Life in 1934. It was nominated for three Oscars including Best Picture and in it she plays a light-skinned black woman who chooses to pass as white and she received a lot of critical acclaim for her performance. Mm. I found her performance really captivating I have to say. We both watched this film as part of our homework, but it wasn't homework at all. It was actually a really, really good film. Really great film. So educational. Yeah, it's embarrassing to admit, but I feel like as an actress, I should have watched more black and white films and I'm going to start. (laughs) (laughs) And I have already with this film. But I was actually flawed and really touched emotionally and, and really gripped right from the first second. It's amazing. And and I was also so impressed, like the role of her. So maybe let's just briefly say what, what is yeah. the plot of this film. Let's talk about the story. Essentially, it's about a widow and her daughter. They're white. And she is sort of really struggling to take care of her kid. And then black lady shows up. The character's name is Delilah, comes with her daughter, a light-skinned black girl, as we've just discussed. So Delilah gets employed by Miss Pullman, that's the white lady's name, um, to be the housekeeper, right, and look after the children. And Delilah, the housekeeper now, tells Mrs. Pullman, or Miss Pullman, her pancake recipe. And then this lady now... Yeah, mm -hmm. keep going, sorry. Yeah, I know what you're going to (laughs) say. Miss 
Pullman runs this runs off with this idea and creates a massive business out of her pancake recipe. Yes, and then when we watched it, <laughs> so I watched the film first, and I texted Amy about halfway through, and I said to her, "Amy, don't you dare start watching this film without making pancakes." I was like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, I was like, I literally had to stop the film. And go and make pancakes because the the <laughs> the advertisement of pancakes in this film is off the charts, guys. Yeah, it like really my is. My mouth was watering for about thirty minutes. <laughs> they keep selling like these pancakes look so good, right? Yes, and they're called Aunt Delilah's pancakes. They're so good. So so I first part of the film really enjoyed it. Second part had to stop. Make pancakes and then sat and ate pancakes and continued watching. Yeah, I really didn't understand why you sent me that until I watched it. Anyway, during all this pancake stuff, <laughs> <laughs> um, Delilah's daughter, the light-skinned black girl, decides that she wants to be white passing, and it happens from a very young age. Like there's a scene where. Delilah goes to her school because she's like, oh, no, it's raining. My daughter needs an umbrella. And Piola, which is the the mm -hmm. light-skinned black girl, sorry. Piola brings a book up in front of her face to hide from her mum because she doesn't want to be associated with her. And there's just all sorts of really heartbreaking moments that happen like that. And this want-to-be-white-passing carries on into her adult life. And she eventually leaves and spoiler alert, you can just pause this and mute this now if you don't want to know the ending. But her mother is so bereft and heartbroken that she she dies of a broken heart. And then Piola comes back to the funeral and tells everyone, that's my mum. And I'm going to talk about that in a second because actually the, the, the ending was supposed to be different and they had to change it because of the censor board. Oh, really? Yeah. There was a lot of problems with the censor board with this um, particular film. I'm going to come back to talking about that. So according to mixed race studies, throughout her career, Washington was vulnerable to discrimination because her near white skin and hazel eyes coupled with her self-identification as Negro cast her as too physically white to play black and too culturally black to play white. The multifaceted Washington was, of course, a great deal more than her looks. She was a performing artist, a writer and a civil and human rights activist, embracing the genres of dance, theatre and film. She used her talent, creativity and determination to sustain a 30 year career in the arts and in labour and political activism during the New Negro Renaissance and beyond. So the difference, again, like Lena Horne, the difference between these two women and the women that we talked about last week, Mel Oberon and Rita Hayworth, was that although she could have passed as white, she decided not to. She chose not to. She decided to identify as a black woman. Which is fascinating because it was the opposite of the role she played in Imitation of Life. Exactly. A quote from Freddie Washington, which she said in 1945, goes, You see, I'm a mighty proud girl. And I can't for the life of me find any valid reason why anyone should lie about their origin or anything else for that matter. 
Frankly, I do not ascribe to the stupid theory of white premacy or to try to hide the fact that I'm a Negro for economic or any other reasons. If I do, I would be agreeing to be a Negro makes me inferior and that I have swallowed a whole hog of all the propaganda dished out by our fascist mind white citizens. It's interesting because when her mother died, she was sent to a place called St. Elizabeth's Convent for orphaned black and Indian children in Cornwell Heights, Pennsylvania. And the thing is about that school is that it was very driven by humanitarian commitment to address systematic justice issues of inequality, racism, hatred, violence, greed and prejudice in church and society. So it was really pushed on her from a young age you know, to stand up for yourself wow. and to fight for injustice. Yeah, which, you know, I, I found amazing because then later on in life, she went on to be an activist and to be really key in rallying a lot of people together to make movements happen and in the equality when it comes to treatment of black actors. So I'm going to go back to Imitation of Life. Um, so as I said, it, it didn't win an Academy Award. But years later, in 2007, Time magazine ranked it as among the 25 most important films on race. And I really can see why. From a website called history.com, it says that um, the reason why it's been tagged as being that is because it dealt frankly with interracial identity passing and the similarities and differences between black and white women themes that had never been thoroughly explored before in mainstream hollywood and unlike all the films for white audiences that came before it essentially it treated the stories of its black and white characters as equally important and you know when i was watching yes. yeah right when i was watching yes. the film i didn't really think that but i was just so engaged but now you know having that written before me i'm like oh yeah that is what it did. Yeah, I, I was actually thinking that when I was watching it. I was like, wow, the storyline of Paola and Delilah is just as important as the relationship between Miss Pullman and her daughter. Yeah, and also the, the dynamic between Miss Pullman and her daughter and how it relates to the relationship of Delilah and her daughter is like really beautiful how they how they bring that in the story so basically mm -hmm. we're just gonna we're just telling you the whole film <laughs> but um miss pullman's ends up meeting a guy and yeah. falling in love and she she goes out of town for a few days because paola's run off missing. and gone, gone missing mm -hmm. because she's deciding to pass as white and so she goes off and during those few days her new love interest that they're actually they're engaged and they're uh, she tells him, please don't tell my daughter that we're engaged yet because she hasn't met you and I don't want her to be overwhelmed. I want her to meet you and then kind of break the news to her that I'm engaged. And so he hangs out with Miss Pullman's daughter for those few days and the daughter falls in love with him. Mm -hmm. And when when Miss Pullman comes back, she has to face you know, the question of, should I proceed and marry this man? Who my daughter is in love with because she finds out. Exactly. Or not. And she ultimately decides 
to choose her daughter, which is so beautiful. Yeah. And it comes off of Delilah losing her daughter and her life. It's kind of like a wake-up call for Miss Pullman to see what is truly important. That's right. And it's, it's like two mothers having their hearts broken in different ways. Yeah, and choosing their daughters above all. Mm-hmm. It really is so beautiful, and you should definitely watch it if you like the sound of yeah. this. Make the pancakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't Go forget watch to do it. that. There's other things I wanted to say about this film is, and I also I want to hear about what got censored out. Yeah. Um, but to white pass back then, it di- it didn't just mean like, oh, I'm gonna get all the privileges of being white now. It meant that you are now cutting yourself off completely from the black people in your life, your immediate family and your friends. Like you cannot be associated with them anymore or have any evidence that you're connected to them. And that's why Delilah's heart was so broken because it meant being disowned. It didn't just mean her daughter's going to follow some new identity. It meant this is the end of our relationship. Yeah, and another thing I wanted to say about the film is I was really touched by like the nuance of how they were depicting the racism that was coming through in ways that weren't as obvious. Um, there's a part when Miss Pullman makes a ton of money. the The pancake business is just like skyrocketing. They're doing great, mm. and she wants to she wants to be like a good non racist white person and give Delilah like a cut of her check, what she deserves for having the pancake recipe. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they've made so much money that really Delilah, she could buy a house with that money, but Delilah kindly turns down the offer to receive the money that she is owed because she knows, she knows there's no way in this world anyone would ever let her be a homeowner. Mm. It's been beaten into her that she is less than, she doesn't deserve to have the life that Miss Coleman has. And it's not even like, it's not even worth it to have a hope or a dream that 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 could happen. It's just not realistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she just... She says in the film, like, oh, no, no, I'd much rather just stay with you and keep working for you. Yeah. And the craziest part is Miss Pullman just accepts that. She thinks already she's been excused because she did the, the moral thing, the good thing of offering the money. Yeah, I mean, she believes Delilah on the face of what she's saying. But I also think it's convenient for her. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I mean, that's my the, the, interpretation. I feel like, the, yeah, it is down to interpretation. Like the actress that plays Miss Pullman, she's she's very three-dimensional and she does an amazing job as well. And you feel the connection between these two women, even though, you know, they're worlds apart. That, but you, you see the human similarities. And that's what's so lovely about it, I think, is that there really is a friendship there. Despite the differences. There is, there is really good intentions mm. on Miss Pullman's part. The best intentions. But what I find interesting is that the film is able to show her blind spots despite her best intentions. And that's kind of 
when we look at racism today, I think so much of it is that, is like, well, we've made all this progress and people are woke now, but there it, there are still so many blind spots where mm-hmm. racism is happening, not intentionally, but just like you're not even aware of it sometimes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, so just to talk about the problems that it faced with the censor board, you mentioned the Hays Code and we mentioned the Hays Code in last week's episode as well. I'm just going to explain exactly what the Hays Code is. This is from The Hollywood Reporter. In 1930, the Motion Picture Production Code, colloquially known as the Hays Code, explicitly forbade the depiction of miscegenation, which it defined as sex relationships between the white and black races. The code was meant to curb immorality in the film industry, profanity, excessive and lustful kissing and disrespectful uses of the flag were also prohibited. And because interracial marriage was still banned in 30 states, its depiction in film would imply the condoning of an illegal act. So this is basically what was going on. So when Universal, who was the studio that was behind um, Imitation of Life, took it to the census board for approval. They'd already started shooting it, by the way. They were already weeks into shooting it. A guy called Joseph Breen, who seems to be the big shot at the um, board, the one who had the task of basically allowing stuff to go on the screen, he had beef with it. And specifically, he had a problem with the character of Piola. Interesting. Yes, so this is the problem that he had, yeah? And this is this is a quote from him. It not only violates the production code, but it's very dangerous from the standpoint of the industry and public policy. He rejected the project, writing, Hearst's novel, so it was actually based on a novel, Hearst's novel, dealing with a partly coloured girl who wants to pass as white, violates the clause covering miscegenation in spirit, if not in fact. So basically he's saying the fact that this character exists is a representation of miscegenation and we can't show that that is possible. That's dun, dun, dun. right. So can you imagine how did Freddie Washington feel out of everything in the film? The census board have a problem with my character. With her and her, by extension, yeah. her existence. Yeah, it, with her existence. That is causing a problem. Not just as a black person but as a mixed yeah. person even everything more specifically is everything forbidden. yeah so just um so this goes on to say their concern was the character of piola in whose person miscegenation was represented by this young woman considered black but with sufficient white ancestry to pass as white and the desire to do so it's basically exactly what we just said her very existence was a problem then this is from the pca The PCA reads Paola's light skin and her passing as signifiers of miscegenation. By conflating miscegenation and passing in this way, the censors effectively attempt to extend the code's ban on desire across black and white racial boundaries to include a ban on the identification across those boundaries as well. So basically, the ban includes even identifying yourself across being mixed you weren't, yeah. al- you weren't allowed to be both, which is what we've been saying yeah. all along. Yeah. So what they actually did was to solve this problem of how the hell are we going to, you know, get it past the censor board, 
They first of all added a line about Paola's dad to say that he was a light-skinned black man. Do you remember I that? Know. Yes, yeah. I remember it because I when it came up, I was like, well, what does she mean by that? Yeah. The girl looks white. But yeah, so, so. They, they had to add it in. So no one was thinking, oh, there must be some white in her family. Like, where does it yeah. come from? And things like that. So they, yeah. they just tried to solve that problem by doing that. The other thing Smart. they also did. <laughs> Smart, a one-liner. Um the other thing they did was they actually changed the ending from what it was supposed to be in the book. In the book, Piola decides she wants to be white passing and she leaves, but she doesn't return. But in the film, she does return. Almost to say, like, I am who I am. I am black and that's my mum. And she's mm. really emotional. Um, and, mm. you know, it's really... I mean, it's... So- it, Go on. So why did they change the ending? So that she didn't identify as white passing because that was the problem. Yeah. You couldn't it's identify like, across the boundaries. That was their wording. Yeah, yeah. But in a way, it actually kind of worked out perfectly because it was so poetic. Yes. That she does come back towards this person that is her family that brought her to the world. and. Uh-huh. It is it is really sad and again we're so fortunate that we are in an age where we can say we're we're mixed and we're proud and we don't have to hide a side of us and that they went out of their way to make sure that it wouldn't even be portrayed in a film. I know. And you know Freddie Washington's role of Paola is relatively smaller in the film but it is so powerful and strong it's so powerful. she has she has like maybe four scenes in the whole film i know but, but she nails them she really does and i feel like it's in contrast to all like i called it all the pancake stuff but it kind of is because it's like oh you know it's just such a different path that adds to adds to the film and to the story and she just embodies that and she just gets right into the bones of it doesn't she right from her first look she does she she has this presence about her and you can see that she is carrying the depth of the conflict that she's in and also young the young paola does a great job um but older paola in the film i i Mm. was watching it and i was thinking i can tell how hard she worked to prepare for this role because she's perfection in it. And mm-hmm. I could just imagine Freddie Washington at home saying, this is my moment. This is my moment to shine. And I'm going to give it everything I have. Yeah. And also it completely conflicts from what I, what I am in real life. But, you know, this is. Yeah, it conflicts with the wanting to be white passing, but not with the claiming in the end. Yeah. So she still had things in common with this character. I wonder if she did at some point in her life seriously consider passing and what that phase was like for her, you know, because I'm sure she had consistently had interactions in public where people just assumed she was white. And how did that feel? And how did it feel when they found out that she, quote unquote, wasn't? And how did that, you know, I'm sure she had just so many stories of navigating that. And even when she did decide that she was going to be black, 
she probably had to convince a lot of people that she's black because they were like, are you sure? She was like, yes. So then she had to prove her blackness. Yeah, I'm sure there was there were so many experiences of those things that you're talking about. But I, I just had this feeling that because she went to the school that she went to and it was really like the way that she was brought up was to stand up for yourself and to stand up for what you believe is right. I feel like she would have made that decision probably quite early on in her childhood. I mean, I don't know for a fact, but that's just what I imagine. Also, there's another um, story about her that says, you know how you mentioned Duke Ellington earlier on when you were talking about Lena Horne? She actually had an affair with him when he was married, okay? And she also, yeah, scandal. She also traveled with him and his band and she, um, the, there's a little story here that says she was pale enough to pass as white in the color obsessed South. And during the tour, she took advantage of her skin color to slip into the whites only ice cream parlors and buy ice cream for the entire band. Yes, I know. But it just, it really brings home what life was like and what society was like back then that there were whites only ice cream places to start with yeah that's just like a little instance of her using her white passing I guess to a bit of an advantage it's I love it it's sassy and beautiful and tragic all at once it is I love it that she did that and that she was like well I might as well I I know what the rules are let's let's play that's right um and then at the same time, it's just so messed up. I know. Yeah. I know. And I, I was thinking, too, like, the amount of times that she may have been tempted, you know? Like, maybe there was a situation where the seating was way more comfortable for the white people than the black people. And mm. she would look at that seating and go, I could just go and sit there. And it's like, no. It, that required yeah. so much discipline on her end to choose Mm. it's kind of like um choosing it again and again and again you don't just choose it once Mm. you have to choose it again and again every day yeah I I really feel like she's just this um gritty brave woman who would always choose again and again and again because that was who she was um and you know it was it was ironic because after imitation of life she was so well known for that role that it actually went against her. Oh, wow. And she she became so identified with Piola that it was hard for her to get other roles. She couldn't do leading roles because she was publicly identifying as being black. And then she couldn't do stereotypical roles as maids, for example, because she was too light. And she was caught in that space between not fitting into casting boxes. Um, and so she left for radio and journalism. And I feel like... It seems like from the research I've done that that was when she really found her voice and started helping the movements of a lot of things. For example, the treatment of black actors. Um, In 1937, she helped found what would become the Negro Actors Guild of America. Um, Wow. Yeah. And she also started writing for um, a publication called The People's Voice who gave her free reign over whatever she what she wanted to cover. And a lot of it was to do with racism and sexism and important criticisms of those things. And so she was very progressive in the way that she thought and really 
really put out a lot of calls to action. And so she, she wasn't scared to say things. The more I find out about her, the more I, I have so much respect for her. She's incredible that she faced all of that rejection and she still was like, okay, but I still have a voice and I'm still going to use it. I know. And I'll just use it in these other ways. I know. I, I love that. She seems like she was so intelligent and articulate. And it's, it's funny here, the fact that we covered those two actresses last week. This is also written in that same um, history.com website. During a time of harsh segregation and overwhelming bias against African-Americans, Freddie Washington embraced her heritage. And while other actresses of Hollywood's golden age, like Mel Oberon, who was Anglo-Indian, and Rita Hayworth, who was Spanish-American, hid their features as the price of admission to white Hollywood, Washington refused to hide behind her light skin. Mm. It, it just goes to show, and, I, and we, we spent time with Meryl and, and Rita last week, and they were incredible women. And it sucked. It just sucked across the board and people went this way and that way. And there's no right way to go about it. I do really respect Lena Horne and Freddie Washington for standing yeah. their ground yeah, and for sticking too. with it. But I also have empathy for the people that didn't um, yes. because it, it was tough, you know, and and it's sad because, yeah, the price was the price was really high. Which which price was higher? I know. Yeah, losing out on work or having to losing, consider losing out on yeah. your ethnic roots. Yeah, and who you are. Yeah. I think that's the higher price. Because both in both cases, people aren't accepting you for who you are. Yeah. I've got a quote here from Freddie Washington, and it's so simple, but it just sums it up. Mm-hmm. She says, but I want to be who I am, nothing else. That's it. Yeah. You want to be who you are, nothing else. I know, me too. I also want to be who I am. <laughs> and it's hard. Shout it's it hard. from the rooftop. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's hard because let alone in a world where we're constantly being told to be this, do that, to fit in. So many things. Um, I just wanted to add one more quote from Lena Horne that sort of touches on all of this. Um, that tricky position that mixed actors were in and that line that they were navigating. Uh, she said, I was unique in that I was a kind of black that white people could accept. I was their daydream. I had the worst kind of acceptance because it was never for how great I was or what I contributed. Yeah, just back to that word of acceptance, you know, no matter what, even even if you're white passing and you're getting jobs because you have that lighter skin, she says it's the worst kind of acceptance uh -huh. because it's that fake acceptance mm. of who you are. What other yeah. people deem is okay. Yeah, yeah. You're only, you're only in here because of a few shades of skin, but otherwise we don't like you. Anyway. But you're, but you're okay. You're okay with this skin. We'll, we'll yeah, let we'll you let in. you in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Freddie Washington, Lena Horne, brave women. So brave. Fierce women. Phenomenal. Thank you for leading the way. Mm -hmm. This was uh, such a fun episode. It, 
It feels so good to find out about women who stood their ground about who they were. Mm-hmm. And they were like, I will stand by the truth of who I am. Okay, <laughs> that wraps up our golden era episodes. It's been a really interesting mixed actors in the industry series. And we have one more episode left in this series before we move on with our lives. <laughs> and that is going to be some funny stories and anecdotes from our lives. Yeah, from yours truly. Yeah, yeah, we're actresses and we've had a share of, you know, funny, weird, unique things happen to us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we've, you know, we've interviewed all these people over the last few episodes and we thought, why not um, bring forth our own stories? That's right. So that is coming to you next week. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share, like, <laughs> comment, all the things. <laughs> please do it because do. it really, it really helps us. It really does. Honestly, in this world of podcasting, it's just, it's the thing that needs to be done <laughs> it's the thing it's the currency yeah. um yes uh yeah thank you so much to all of our new listeners that have joined us this week yeah. welcome welcome yeah, welcome well, it's great to have you here um yeah. we're, we're very excited about the things that we have in store there is there is a lot isn't there yes um we hope you have a wonderful week and and see you next week see you then This episode was produced by us, music by Matthias Kunzli.